Moses was a revolutionary. He was a revolutionary. He led the Israelite slaves into freedom. He brought ten devastating plagues against the cruel and ruthless Egyptian monarch. He believed in monotheism before it was cool, when everyone in the Middle East worshipped sun gods and moon gods and animal deities. But, in fact, he was revolutionary in another way as well, which rarely gets mentioned. Unlike anyone who'd come before, Moshe believed in the spirituality, the purity, and the power of the desert. What? In the ancient world, the desert would have been an odd place indeed to communicate with God, to receive Hashem's laws, and to sacrifice to Hashem. And yet, for Moshe, it was seemingly the ideal place, at least for the time being. In 2021, Chaim Knoll published a colossal work on how the desert has been portrayed throughout literary history. It is entitled Die Wüste, Literaturgeschichte einer Ullandschaft des Menschen. In this book, Chaim explains how the depiction of the desert in the Torah was truly groundbreaking. Chaim grew up in East Berlin. Although Jewish, he knew almost nothing about Judaism in his youth due to the communist society in which he was raised. When he refused to serve in the East German army, he was put in prison, where he went on a hunger strike. In 1994, he left East Germany with his wife and children and began working as a journalist in West Germany. In 1995, he made Aliyah to Israel. He has written several autobiographical works on his tumultuous life in East Germany. Chaim has published articles in Die Welt, Jüdische Allgemeine, and Frankfurter Allgemeine, among countless other newspapers. He currently resides in a suburb of Beersheba, Israel, surrounded by desert on all sides. Can you just talk a bit about what was different about this depiction of the desert um, versus earlier depictions? Yeah, in the old civilizations in uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt, the desert was considered the place out of the real life because the scribes lived in towns and town and desert are from the beginning on in a certain state of hostility for the for people living in town the desert was a place of dangerous disorder incalculability a place of fear and then it is not really surprising that it was connected with the death so for the egypt for the old egypt the desert was a place of the death so the death went out of the real world. That was a Nile um, valley and the delta of the Nile. Uh, 
where the real people lived and went out into the desert. And the entire mythology is built up on that, that the gods fear, lead the death people into the desert. People were buried in the desert. The desert, desert was a place of the necropolis, the um, city of the desert, of the death. So for the ancient pre-Hebrew cultures or pre-monotheistic cultures, maybe Mesopotamia, ancient mm. Egypt, um, the desert was a place of death, of danger, of threat, unholy place. Yeah. Unclean. Unclean. Um, and, yeah. So how would you describe the Hebrew conception of the, of the desert in contrast? Yeah, in the beginning, they, they were influenced, of course, by the... Um, Egyptian culture they came from and for them it must have been a shock that they were um, led into the desert so that was a great uh, task um, Moses had that he had to um, lead people into the desert and if you know the mosaic books you know that they all the time uh, were quarreling about that and they were not happy about uh, being led to the desert and that's why, you know, um, that um, all men above 20 had to die in the desert as a punishment because uh, at one point um, God lost patience and said, this um, um, generation doesn't know any... Um, they, they, they are not uh, grateful. They don't... Uh, yeah. they, they never understand what I did for them, that I made them free. So they didn't want to become free, many of them. It is an old um, human uh, problem that many people prefer slavery mm -hmm. that is embedded in a kind of security yeah. um, before um, uh, freedom. So the Hebrews that escaped into the desert, they still thought maybe like the Egyptians thought about the desert. Is that hmm. what you're saying? The first generation, yeah. I think most of them, and the the exception are the women. The Talmud stresses that the woman did not uh, become guilty in this sense. So I asked if the desert is depicted as kind of a holy, positive place to be in the Torah. You said that for many, many Hebrews got there and complained a lot. Actually, everyone over 20 wasn't even allowed to yeah. go into the land of Israel, except for Caleb and Joshua. Um, but the people that even decided to go in the first place to leave Egypt were already at least open to the idea of, of a desert existence. Uh, let's say they were open to the idea of, of leaving Egypt. That was um, stunning enough. So they um, they had a, a kind of secure life in Egypt and they yeah. were uh, ready to sacrifice this kind of security to go into, the, into a totally unknown environment. Yeah, and by and by, I think it um, became another kind of... Um, they 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 felt different towards the desert.
so I think what I try to explain with these um, structures they built and the places they made pleasant and so on, this was step by step that they found out that the desert is a place you can live in. The desert is not, is not a kind of hell or something. And then the, many of them felt it a good thing to having gone into the desert because they could live there on their level that they built up themselves. They found out that the desert is a place of potential good life, as we also found out in Israel. I mean, there is only desert and uh, we, we built a, a modern civilization on, on that desert sand. It's possible. There is a lot of things in that desert sand, um, minerals and whatever. You only need water and you have wonderful vegetation and, and can start with ag agriculture on a high level. And that's what they wanted to do. And then they had to find a way to make the desert a hospitable place. And of course, this changed their attitude. And then the desert became a place of holy revelation and um, um, spiritual experience. But it was connected, of course, with the hard work to make really? this landscape a place to live in. So they had such a positive experience in the desert that they began to associate it with revelation and with law and yeah is that what you're saying oh uh, the law is necessary in the desert uh, you can't live in the desert desert without a law that's a big problem that wild nomadic tribes who that originally live in the desert uh, start to um, uh, are always in a state of war uh, um, about the water places and the few uh, uh, places where the uh, where the um, flocks flocks can graze and so on. So, I have another question. I always read the Torah and thought, like, the desert is not. They want to get out of the desert. They want to go to the the promised land, the land of milk and honey, and that the desert is sort of a temporary, you know, they also were, I thought we thought this wandering in the desert was like a punishment because it says, you know, you're going to have to, they were supposed to go to Egypt pretty, I mean, to, to Israel um, hmm. pretty soon. It's not that far away from the Sinai. But because no, of, it's uh, not. Uh, it's it's not for. It doesn't need forty years to go from be, to go from of, uh, the Nile um, Valley to uh, the Canaanite uh, coastal strip. Because but of the the, uh, the spies, because they didn't show their belief in God, they they went to spy the land and they said, "We can't defeat." And they God had says, to learn to live with the law first. That so, was the problem. So. I mean, these yeah. people have been slaves, and um, I guess they were quite uncivilized, most of them. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that they needed a certain period to get trained with the law and to learn, right, to build up a sedentary kind of life. That was a goal, So, but uh, they had to learn that.
You are listening to The Shrift, Interview 13 with writer Chaim Noel, Shemot. It sounds like um, the Torah was the first to look at the desert with open, open-mindedly, and say this is a place. That's where, a possibility where yeah. um, we can start from from zero, from scratch, null right. punct, and um, we can create a new society, a new way of mm. life, um, where we have uh, a, a blank canvas to to mm-hmm. start again. And that I want to go now to my to the next. So, in your book, you talk about. Um, the theory of Ernst Bloch as to why the Hebrews went into the desert. And you said that Bloch conceives of it as they wanted to be free. It was a drive toward freedom, freedom from the from slavery. Um, and I guess I just want to ask, do you agree with Bloch and do you think that what Bloch says is different than how it's depicted in the Torah as to why the Hebrews are leaving? Uh, I think they leave because of that. So the oppression became unbearable and um, now there was the personality of Moses who was obviously a rather let's say um um, um, with 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 very strong emotions, um, uh, up charismatic, to, yeah, up to violent person. We we know about the story that he killed one of the uh, officials who uh, oppressed um, uh, Hebrews. So he was from, from his temper was very hot, and he was a man who obviously um, felt. This kind of um, being unfree really um, unbearable. So he he didn't like to live that way, and he obviously he and his uh, his comrades. I think that he had a group of people supporting him from the beginning on. They were capable to stir up the the other people to say there is a possibility to go out of that. Uh, uh, of that um, uh, life we have here and go into freedom uh, in case we are ready to take the risk to go into the desert. So then you from the beginning on, I mean, the desert was um, uh, in the tradition of thinking until this point, the most terrible place you could go to. So, But obviously the, the oppression was um, that... Um, uh, that's that uh, terrible that they were ready to do that. I, I try to imagine what really happened. So it was a kind of outbreak, of course, and uh, Bloch calls it a rebellion against the... It was, for instance, a rebellion against tradition, of course. Tradition was in Egypt that a slave was a slave and remained a slave, and a slave who said, I'm fed up with that, and I go, I prefer to go into the desert... Um, uh, instead of being a slave anymore. He he broke with every tradition of thought and everything. So that's why it was really um, 
great event when people were ready to um, to go out into an unsecure and um, um, very dangerous future only to change their life. Let me ask you this. So you... Um... I'm interested in how you read the Torah, because I think that's important. Um, so the Torah, I don't think, says specifically, you know, the reason the Hebrews left was because they wanted to be free. The Torah doesn't really get into these, um, the mindset. Let me just, I just want to, hmm. do you, I know you're pretty religious in terms of your practice, um, but you also said that, for example, Moses striking the rock could be seen as a metaphor um, for his knowledge of the agriculture. So how do you read the Torah? Like how much of it do you read as, I believe whatever the Torah says is true versus I'm going to, I'm going to read other texts. I'm going to read, I'm going to read it more like an archeologist or more like an anthropologist. I mean, how do you approach this, this book? I look that... into the Torah in this book, in, in my desert book, as a um, piece of literature. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, I believe in the truth of literature. Generally, there's always some truth in, in literature. Of course, it's different. And what is written in the Torah is true, but it is still literature. That, that means that there are the means of literature to tell the story, to tell what happened. So that's metaphors, very, right. we don't have to take everything All literally. the means of literature, narratives. So it's very interesting. I, I read what uh, Rabbi Sachs, uh, Jonathan Sachs, the, the former British uh, chief rabbi, wrote about the rule, the role of uh, of narratives, uh, especially in Book of Genesis, that the Book of Genesis is ninety percent only narratives. Mm -hmm. It's stories. stories he, yeah. he he calls this storytelling, and he even the, he even quotes um, uh, Eli Weisel. Do uh, do I pronounce it right? I, uh, I, I would say Eli, Wiesel. Yeah, Eli well, Wiesel. He, Wiesel. Say, yeah. Eli Wiesel. He even uh, quotes Eli Wiesel, who said that. Uh, God created man because man is the source of so many interesting stories that God, God can enjoy to look at what, what man is doing. Well over two years ago, in episode 13 of The Shrift, I discussed one of Freud's controversial theories. Excuse the redundancy. In his 1940 work, Moses and Monotheism, Freud argued that Moshe was not a Hebrew, was not a Levite, and was not even Jewish. Rather, Moshe was an Egyptian. According to Freud, he was actually in the Egyptian aristocracy. He chose to lead the Hebrews to freedom not because he was one of them, but presumably because he believed in their cause. Given Chaim's expertise in the Torah and in the desert, I asked him this most explosive of questions. Was Moses an Egyptian? And should it matter? 
let's um let's talk about Moses in this context and and Freud. So um Freud, I think uh as I said, he claimed that Moses was an Egyptian even though in the Torah it states he was a Hebrew. Okay. He was from, it says in the Torah he was from the tribe of Levi. And Freud um felt I mean, he was in a way like reading the Torah not as a rabbi, but as a historian or as a um, psychologist, psychologist, yeah. anthropologist. Not th- he was reading it with a very critical, skeptical eye. And he actually begins his book, uh, Moses and Monotheism. Um, his first sentence, I'll read it out loud. Uh, he says, he, he speaks with embarrassment or he's he's afraid that he's going to get attacked by other jews for daring to say that moses might have been egyptian he says to deny a people the man whom it praises as the greatest of its sons is not a deed to be undertaken lightly especially by one belonging to that people meaning freud himself is jewish no consideration however will allow me to set aside truth in favor of national interests that's the quote. So um, essentially he's saying that, you know, I feel really bad to be telling all these Jews that Moses is Egyptian, but for me, the truth is more important than what really happened. So, um, well, I guess, you know, sometimes if you view the Torah as literature, you might run into some problems with some of the theology, um, potentially. Maybe, yeah. If you're not taking everything literally. Um, I take it literally, but I take it literally in the in the way literature is to take literally. So, yeah. I mean, the literature has its ways to... Uh, to um, to make, to understand what, what has to be... Um, convey to the read, uh, reader so the the same with Moses and the question uh, question whether he was of what ethnic background he was I mean both can be true uh, the speculations were raised by the fact that uh, the daughter of Pharaoh found him and gave him an Egypt name so we have the undeniable situation that the man who um initiated uh, this rebellion and led the people into the desert uh, was a man with a non-Hebrew name. He had an Egypt name. So, and this, of course, is the source of many speculations that he may not have been a Hebrew at all. But I don't think that's so important. Maybe he was... I don't know. So Thomas Mann writes that he was the fruit of a um, un, uh, of a, of an affair between Pharaoh's daughter and a Hebrew slave. You know the story. No, no. In his uh, in his story, um, Das Gesetz. Thomas Mann wrote a uh, wrote a uh, wrote a he calls it short novel, but it's more. Uh, uh, yeah, a novella in for this uh, famous book that was um, uh, published in the United States in 1943 
um, uh, about uh, Hitler's war against the moral code. And Thomas Mann contributed one story about Moses. Very interesting. And he goes some step of, um, so he, he, he gets something more detailed than Freud, who only wrote he may have been in Egypt. Uh, he writes that uh, Pharaoh's daughter fell in love with a Hebrew slave um, and let him bring into her pavillon and they had a love affair and he was killed afterwards of course because he, um, um, he it, 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 that, that shouldn't be that Pharaoh's daughter was um, mm -hmm. and he, she became pregnant mm -hmm. and then the uh, then the baby had to be brought to Hebrew people and um, they adopted him And then, when the Hebrews were persecuted, and the uh, and the fur and the and the babies should be killed, I mean, uh, we we forgot this uh, fact uh, in the question uh, why they considered uh, the going out a kind of um, becoming free. I mean, there was real persecution. Yeah, that I'm sure that this story means that they were really persecuted. Yeah, and, and threatened. Um, so that uh, they they had to go out to uh, to survive. It wasn't so, some so, but um, uh, let's return to Moses. So in in that situation, they um, brought him with the basket into the um, to the to the Nile, and the, and then it was arranged that she found him. So that's a story Thomas Mann tells. I I understand that they all. Um, were um, uh, moved by the fact that he had a non-Hebrew name. I mean, that's uh, interesting. Uh, there are some other names mentioned at this time. Aharon is a Hebrew name, should uh, consider his brother. Of course, it's a little bit uh, strange that one brother has an Egypt name and the other one a Hebrew name. Then there is a, daughter, a sister, even a Miriam. Who knows? Maybe he was adopted. But then he's still, when he was adopted by Hebrew parents, he's still a Hebrew. So, But you can also look from the other way and say he's not a Hebrew because he was born half Egyptian or whatever. I don't think it's important. Important is that he felt... Uh, such a strong relation with these oppressed and persecuted people, whether he was really one of them or not. I mean, you have people with, let's say, a mixed background with one Jewish grandparent or something, but with a very strong feeling for the Jewish people and uh, a want to belong to it. And others who have for Jewish grandparents and don't feel like that and don't feel Jewish at all. So people are very different. And he was, without any doubt, he was a person, whatever his natural parents have been, whoever his natural parents have been, he was a person with a very strong feeling for the, for yeah, the oppressed course. Hebrews. So I really love what you're saying. I totally agree. But... In the Torah, it does say that he was Hebrew and that he was, that he was, I think it says, an Ivri from Levite parents. So my question is, in terms of how, 
in terms of reading the Torah as literature, how do you make sense? Why did the Torah, why does the Torah just say he's Egyptian, but he loved the Hebrews so much that he was, he was like, he, it was Hebrew. Why do they have to cover this up in the Torah? Why do they, why do they not openly say that? I'm not sure they covered it up. It's, it's quite possible that he was adopted by Hebrew parents. The wild Maybe man. ordered. Also, let, let us follow the story of Thomas Mann. I mean, that's without any proof. Everything is without any proof about his ethnic background. But let us follow his story. So then um, Hebrew people adopted him. And then from the from our halachic point of view, a child, whether it's from Japan or from Africa, wherever, adopted by Jewish parents is a Jew. Okay. So then he so then he was a Hebrew. So it, it hasn't to be a cover-up. It's Maybe it's that story. Maybe he was Egyptian. And so, I mean, there are many possibilities. It's not an alternative being Egyptian. Or it's it's, it's why, uh, possible that he was... Uh, but why wouldn't the Torah... I mean, the Torah doesn't stay, say this background that he was adopted. They make, The Torah represents it, I would think, as though he was born to... No, the, the Torah, uh, I mean, uh, uh, about adoption, nobody likes to talk anyway in in, in chronics. So um, generally, uh, but adoption was a, a very uh, widespread mm -hmm. phenomenon. It was mm -hmm. quite usual in, in ancient times to adopt uh, children to get, um, uh, for instance, some uh, someone who could uh, take the... Uh, become the next prince or something uh, when the parents had no children. So it was quite uh, usual. So the Torah only says that he was the child or the son of these people from, uh, of the tribe of Levi and he had a brother and a sister with obviously Hebrew names. The Torah could have also, if, if the Torah wanted to truly cover it up, they could have changed his name to be Right. Uh, I mean, know, the, that uh, they that they didn't change the name right. tells me that they didn't cover it up, that they let it open for us to mm -hmm. um, to see in it whatever. But I I don't see any and they could have just any taken out the princess it. from the whole story. by the princess hmm. but then she immediately gives the child back to a hebrew hmm. um mid um nurse to nurse to moses mom hmm. moses mother to nurse hmm. him so it's like why does the torah could have just left that part out about the egyptian princess it's just, strange yeah i i i understand that it's strange and that it um uh, inspires speculations and i understand quite well what Freud meant and he maybe he was interested in the phenomenon that if he was not really a, a Hebrew from his ethnic background why was he so interested uh, in um, fighting for the 
for the case of the Hebrews? So that's a very interesting question. Um, but uh, the ethnic question is more and more unimportant in Torah anyway, because the law was given to those ready to accept whatever ethnic background. So Can that's, you say a little more about that? What happened? About Sinai, yeah, we, right? we are um, we we have that uh, term of the Irev Rav, the mixed multitude that oh, went yeah. with the Hebrews out of Egypt. So it is hinted, and maybe whether there were even the majority, uh, but a big part of this um, uh, of these folks that went into the desert was not of um, ethnic Hebrew background. It only counted whether you were ready to accept it and to um, say the, the formula, we do it and we hear it. So it's interesting that the doing is before the hearing, but there are so many rabbinical um, uh, extemporis that I'm, I haven't to add anything about that. So it's uh, it's quite common uh, knowledge um, that this is important. Uh, that's why uh, Judaism stresses on the deed more than on belief. It's not a religion where belief uh, has a, is a, is a, a right. most important thing, but what you do. Sure. Um, so that's why uh, the question was who was ready to listen to that law that was quite ambitious i must say for people who came out of the nothing and with a lot of demanding um, they had to do a lot to fulfill and to obby and so on and when they were ready to say okay we do that they were accepted in this new um, constituted people and uh, then the question whether they came from Africa or wherever or where really Hebrews or Egypt or Nubians or wasn't interesting anymore. So everybody, it was kind of, Matt, Sinai was kind of a mass conversion, so to speak, where everybody yeah. that was there. Right. No matter so who their lineage yeah. was and if they believed in the law, they were Jewish. Yeah, so um, I mean, this this became the the Jewish principle that uh, the ethnic background is uh, only secondary. The, uh, important is uh, the the acceptance of the law and of the principles, ethnic principles, whatever of of Judaism. And so it is until today. When you go in a street in Jerusalem, you see people of all colors. You see black people and yeah, very blonde people, and they are all Jews. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Um, do you think that you speak very with a very open mind about Moses potentially being Egyptian lineage? Maybe, I mean, he might have been adopted. We don't really know. But is that something you could say to a religious Jew? Like, hey, you know that guy Moshe? He's He might have actually been have Egyptian blood and not Hebrew blood and his name is not even a Jewish name I'm I'm very critical towards uh, Moses anyway he wasn't a he wasn't a saint he wasn't a saint okay so it, from the beginning on 
he he is introduced as a murderer if you want so he was a he was a man ready to become very violent i mean there is a question anyway why was he included although he was a leader and he did everything to to bring the people out why was he included into the spell of not uh, going into the uh, promised land but ha having to uh, having uh, to die in the desert hmm. uh, he was not excluded as, as Joshua and, and Caleb, but he had to die in the desert as well, as Aharon and, and uh, the others. This question, so the, there must have been dark points, and I look into that. And uh, in my new book, I, I write about this uh, mass killing of the Midianite woman that was not really commanded by God. It was not commanded by God. He said so, but it's not true. So he, he did things that are not uh, acceptable by the law that he preached. He had a Midianite woman himself, for instance, but killed all the others. So there are some strange points in this uh, personality. So and I have no problem to, to speak about that. Even to an uh, ultra-Orthodox rabbi, I don't know whether he would like that discussion and whether he would invite me to have this discussion. But as a Jew, I feel obliged to look into the text with the critical eyes and find the, those points that are strange and try to think about uh, what it means. Would you, how do you, do you see yourself as different than Freud in his approach? Because Freud had this introduction where he says it's i feel you know i feel guilt i feel strange or i feel like i could get in trouble or for saying daring to say that moses is egyptian but i want to speak the truth but freud of course was an atheist i don't know the truth but nobody saying, knows the truth how do you do you think of do you feel like your approach to the torah is how is it similar or different than freud's i guess is what i'm asking I don't know. I, I, uh, maybe the difference is this, that Freud, Freud felt some uh, urge to, um, to, to, find, um, to find out that the Torah is not true. I don't see it like that. The Torah is true, and when you look into the text, the Torah text itself re reveals the dark sides of Moshe. He's, it's not covered up. So that's why the I don't feel the the urge to reveal something because it is oh, I see. everything is obvious. You only have, you only have to read the Torah text and you find it out. The, this uh, story with the Midianite woman you can read about it that it was not uh, uh, commanded by God. That was not true what he said to the people. So and I mean it's it's not stressed on that. You, it's not uh, in, in big red uh, letters, but uh, you find it out when you look into the text. So that's why I don't uh, see any reason to, to prove that the Torah is not true. It is true. Everything is written in the Torah. You only have to find it out. So I think Freud maybe felt like if he said anything unorthodox, that would be too counter the Torah, whereas you're saying that mm. the Torah almost once encourages us to find these dark aspects or these um, these uncomfortable truths, perhaps, that the Torah yeah. encourages. Whereas I think Freud thought, well, 
if it's the Torah is more if there's something that's uh, that's controversial, the Torah is going to try to cover it up, or 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 is is going to be something that the Torah doesn't want us, or Judaism doesn't want us to, or at least the Torah doesn't want us to uh, discover. The Bible, and not only the Torah, the Bible altogether is a very controversial book. You find a lot of uh, opposing opinions and everything. So, I mean, that's that's uh, well known and that makes this book so unique and interesting to read until today, uh, that it is controversial and the controversial... Um, the uh, d discussions and debates. I mean, it's a book that starts with discussions between Abraham and his God. No other religion knows that, that people can discuss with their God and um, uh, go into a kind of, uh, let us say, Meinungsverschiedenheit. Uh, how, how do you call uh, it in English? Uh, difference of opinion? Difference of opinion, yes, and in a very, very vehement and um, emotional ways or disagreement disagreements of um, real uh, in an outspoken way so it's, it's not covered up you find a lot of that again and again mm. okay yeah um, and I'm just curious now like what do you make of the creation story and creation of the universe in, in seven in six days Obviously, that's not uh, how science views it. How do you perceive that as being true, but also not covering it up, so to speak? So numbers in the Bible in general are um, means of literature in my eyes. You find too often the same numbers, the number seven, the number 40, for instance, or three. There are numbers that are preferred uh, and connected with a certain meaning. And seven, for instance, is um, has the meaning of fulfillment. Sheva, Be'er Sheva, so the, the entire, and, and it's the same root as um, uh, the word for um, swearing, for instance, so of, of fulfilling. Um, it's it's the same word um so uh, f uh, seven means to fulfill something to bring it to the end and so seven days of creation means that it's a period the creation was done i don't believe that there are really meant seven days it's a symbolic number as it is seven years um uh, yakov has to serve for Rachel, maybe it have been six and a half or uh, three only, but the seven means it's it's fulfilled. As 40 is another number. Goethe wrote very interesting about the number 40. He made a list of what, uh, uh, wherever 40 in the, in the Bible appears, and the same is with seven. So I, I mean, nobody says that we have to take the numbers in the Bible uh, there, are, there are more, um, there are more um, 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 unclear points.
So again, this is an example of the truth of literature that literature is always getting at a truth, but in an indirect way with symbols, with metaphors, not just telling you exactly. No, it's 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 artistic. And um, the Torah conveys its truths through the art of literature, in your opinion. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just had one more question uh, before we finish. I just wanted to, I know you have your, have written so much about the DDR. I just have a curious about if we can connect it to this topic. So um, we talked about how at Mount Sinai, all of the, people there no matter who they no matter where they're from what they what their ethnicity is they all were eligible to become part of the hebrew nation if they believed and that's also ernst bloch who was himself uh as you write about in your book was a staunch communist he was a communist he, yeah he uh, let's say a marxist yeah a marxist yeah he he loved this story because it was a story about how all people are equal, all people are brothers, and they just need to believe in a common cause to be part of a society. Um, so I guess I have two questions. To what extent do you see Israel today in terms of its citizens as embodying this ideal at Sinai, which Ernst Bloch talks about and which you also seem to believe in and and then also the ddr because i always thought of communism in the ddr which is where you grew up as being very their attitude was yeah everybody's welcome here no matter what race or and but i mean I, this is just my you know my uh very uninformed thoughts compared to yours and Israel, by contrast, to become you know to become a citizen, you have to, if you have the Jewish ethnicity, you immediately can become a citizen. Obviously, you can convert and also become a citizen, but it's not. But it is also be. I mean, you can also become a citizen if you don't if 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 you don't believe, but you just have this ethnicity. So, um, what's your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. GDR was not a country where everyone was welcome. It was a, um, a very xenophobic country, first of all, very nationalist. I mean, there are uh, illusions about what communism really uh, was. Communism had wonderful declarations, um, but they were not uh, they were not really uh, realized in. The, the contrary, I mean, it was a kind of slavery and, and people were um, oppressed and um, killed even when, they, when their ideas were not uh, congruent with that of the party. Hundreds of thousands, millions were killed. I mean, we shouldn't forget this. GDR uh, never presented itself as a place where everyone was welcome. It wasn't a free place. It wasn't a place where people were welcome. So I'm, um, I must say that the contrary is true. That Israel is a place where 
many people are welcome. I mean, you have to fulfill certain conditions when you want to stay. Everyone, uh, of course, is uh, accepted as a stranger to visit first. And when you want to stay for a longer time, you have to find uh, some way to uh, to work. But there are many people working in Israel who are no, no, not Jewish, not only the Palestinian workers, but also many people from abroad at the university in Beersheba. I don't know how many dozen um, uh, foreigners we have working there with working permits, not being Jewish. A lot of people. So there was a, a German journalist um, returning as a correspondent from Israel. She really wrote, and it was a, it was a blatant lie, that she couldn't uh, stay longer in Israel because her son, as the son of a goite, as a non of a non-Jewish woman, would have not been accepted to university. Uh, it's a it's a real lie. Mm. I mean, we have. Uh, hundreds and thousands of non-Jewish yeah. students at the universities yeah, of all of kinds. Of, so it's it's absurd. I mean, the uh, the picture of Israel is uh, distorted, obviously. And this woman knew better. I wrote in my article about her that it's a that it's a tragic story that she feeds her own son with lies. I think he will find out one day. He has a Jewish father, and she. He, of course, he was entitled to, also without a Jewish father. Everyone is entitled to study at an Israeli university or live there for a time. So that's completely untrue. So then you have, to, when you want to stay and when, want to become a citizen, but that's the way in every country of the world. You have to live. I'd, my brother, for instance, went from Germany to Switzerland and had also to wait four years or so and had to undergo some uh, kind of examinations or whatever, or people going to the United States. I mean, you have to fulfill conditions when you want to become a citizen. But entering the country is, is allowed to everybody and staying for a time. And then even you can work if you find some work without being Jewish, you can stay and no, that's not true. Great. So, fine. That, yeah, interesting. Thank you, Chaim, so much for your time. It was I, I hope that it will be. An int- you have to to re. Um... When Freud wrote his book Moses and Monotheism. He expected that his words would scandalize the Jewish world. Moses? An Egyptian and not a Jew? How dare Freud utter such blasphemies? And yet, Chaim Noll, a devout Orthodox Jew himself, was not the least bit offended by Freud's claim. In fact, Chaim found it to be rather irrelevant. For even if Moses were born Egyptian, it would not make him any less Jewish in that he was present for the revelation at Mount Sinai among other reasons. Here, Freud was, ironically, being naive. He thought, as we all tend to, that the more religious people are, the more easily they can be offended, hurt, scandalized, when some scientific truth is revealed to them from the secular world about which they obviously know nothing. Actually, in my experience, religious people, when they become truly educated in their scripture, are already somehow aware of all the devastating counter-arguments to their beliefs. 
In the realm of Christianity, the Gospels, these alleged eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, were written at a minimum of 40 years after Jesus' death. In any random church, I would guess, and it is just a guess, most of the attendees think the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John were actually written by those four men whilst they were traveling around with Jesus. Little did these poor churchgoers realize, however, that Jesus had been dead for over 50 years by the time Luke put pen to paper, we think to ourselves with a smug grin. And yet, go to the Vatican, and you will not find a single priest there who is not all too familiar with this supposed sacrilegious truth. They all know, these Vatican priests, that the author of the Gospel of Luke was not Luke himself, and at best could have known Jesus' great-grandchildren, but certainly not Jesus himself. Ironically, it is these priests, the ones who know the dark side of their own religion, who are the most devout. Not only did Chaim shrug at the notion that Moses might have been Egyptian, he even one-upped Freud, so to speak, by positing that Moses, the great, unassailable, incorruptible Moses, himself had a dark side. Not because he might have been Egyptian, but because he occasionally acted violently, impetuously, and callously. And yet, it is Chaim who has carefully studied the Torah, who knows dark truths about the Torah of which Freud could scarcely have dreamed, who remains the more convinced of these two Jewish intellectuals. Freud seems to have believed that opening the Torah and reading it critically, even academically, would turn Jews away from the religion. Chaim, by contrast, has shown us the very opposite, that a deep academic dive into the Torah leaves one not irrevocably shaken, but rather resolutely devout.